Amen. Please be seated. This morning we'll be taking a look at John chapter 17. If you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to John 17, we'll read from uh, that chapter in just a moment. As you're turning, I want to share this with you. It's from an author by the name of Samuel Rodriguez. He wrote a book last year entitled Be Light. And Rodriguez tells the following story. In 1957, a graduate student at Columbia University named Gordon Gould had been working on a project. He was pumping atoms to higher energy states so they would emit light. And as Gould elaborated on his ideas and he began to speculate on all the the ways that research could be applied, applying this concentrated beam of light, he realized he was onto something. And so in his notebook, he named this yet-to-be-invented device a laser, which if you didn't know, as I didn't, laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation, a laser. Well, 60 years later, we are still seeing the impact of this remarkable tool. This picture that you'll see here is uh, something actually a couple of you could probably speak to a lot better than, than I can. Very recently, Lockheed Martin boasted about uh, a new laser that, that was a ground-based prototype system that is actually able to burn through an entire car engine, as you can see here on this picture. That alone, I guess, would be pretty impressive to be able to burn through a car engine in a matter of seconds. But what is most impressive about this particular laser is that it was able to do so from a, a distance of over one mile away. Uh, Lockheed Martin calls this laser system the most efficient and lethal version on the planet. So back to Rodriguez and his book. He says, from a spiritual perspective, the laser represents the ultimate expression of the impact we can have in a world in need of light. Now listen to this. He says, if we are able to understand the stunning power of unity expressed in a laser beam and translate that, into our own lives, then we might have a greater impact on our world than we ever possibly imagined. There is a stunning power of unity, as this picture clearly demonstrates, right? You get all those uh, uh, protons, neutrons, whatever, you get all that light, you get it all sort of focused in that one area, and you can see the result. And I think he makes a a great point that for us, as as the body of Christ, as believers washed in the blood who are united together now as one people, as one body, there is a stunning power when Christian unity is demonstrated the way in which the Lord intended for it to be. And this leads us directly into our time together in God's Word from John chapter 17. Because this morning as we read through this text and as we reflect on it, we will find Jesus in, in one of the, the few moments he has remaining with those followers prior to his arrest, prior to the crucifixion, we find Jesus praying, but he's not praying any ordinary prayer. He's praying a prayer specifically for unity. So let's hear now the word of God from John 17. We'll begin by looking at the first five verses together, and then we'll make our way through part of this, this chapter. This is the word of God. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. 
Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Okay, so in John's gospel, in John's gospel, uh, when Jesus talks about glory, it is always a precursor, it is always looking ahead to the cross, all right? Uh, we, we just want to state that now. We'll pick this theme up again next week, okay? But I want us to, to know that as in John's gospel, when Jesus is speaking of his glorification, that is always his way of talking about what's going to happen on the cross. Now, to be fair, the world is, has a hard time understanding how the cross is, is a moment of glory, but that's how Jesus sees it and understands it. So throughout the Gospels, and in particular John's Gospel, Jesus is frequently saying things like, you know, my time has not yet come. Uh, my, my time, is, this is not the reason that I came, that the time isn't now, all right? We find Jesus saying that repeatedly, but here in John 17, he's saying quite the opposite. He's saying, okay, in these final moments with, the follow, with his, his disciples, just before, you know, they're going to come and take him into custody, and then the crucifixion and all that is about to start, Jesus prays, and he prays, okay, God, uh, Father, the time is now. <laughs> this, is, this is game time. This is the reason for which I was sent. And he says, so now, since it, this is the time, please, Father, glorify me through what is about to happen, code for the cross. It's as if Jesus is saying, this moment, when, when the powers and the evil forces think that they're killing me, this is actually my moment of glory. That's the glory of the cross. We'll touch on that again next week, okay? So now we move down, starting in verse, uh, verse 6. Jesus says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. Same prayer. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. He's praying specifically now for those disciples who are in his proximity. He's praying for those followers who are right there huddled around him in this moment. He's praying just for them. And, he's, and, he, and he prays here, all I have is yours and all you have is mine, Father, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. He is anticipating his departure, all right? Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, now look at this, so that they may be one as we are one. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's saying, just as you and I are one, Lord, Father, now I pray that my followers, that these here that you've given me would be one. Skipping down to verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone, Jesus says. Not just for those 12, not just for those followers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And again, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, note this, that they may be one 
as we are one, I and them and you and me, may they be brought, not to partial unity, to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Okay, a lot going on there, as we've said for many weeks. If we're going to study John's gospel, we have to hear these lengthy discourses, and we're doing our best to, to be fair to the things that Jesus is saying here. There's a lot we could discuss. Uh, this is one of those places where, again, we find Jesus praying, but this prayer functions, as I told you, a little differently. This is not just some ordinary sort of prayer. This is one of those sermon prayers. You know what a sermon prayer is, right? It's the kind of prayer that your mom prayed over you as a family when you and, and maybe your siblings were getting a little rowdy, right? You're getting a little angry and tempers are flaring and you're saying things you shouldn't and maybe, you know, somebody's pinching somebody and he looked at me, you know, and all this kind of stuff is going on and, and mom has one of these sermon prayers where she, she prays and she, she kind of has this voice where, you know, like she wants you to, to hear her praying. It's not an internal kind of thing, but she prays in this voice like, Lord, please help us respect one another in this family, and treat people the way we ought to treat one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? You ever heard one of those prayers? It's like, my, like mom's praying, but, but she's preaching a little bit too, right? That's a sermon prayer. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's praying. Okay, he's praying. But, but he's doing a little bit of preaching. Doing a little bit of preaching here as well. Uh, in John 17, we could divide the prayer up pretty easily along these lines. Many of your Bibles, maybe you have a little heading over some of these sections, and, and it's pretty obvious. Okay, Jesus begins, and he's praying for himself, and then he moves from this prayer for himself. He prays then for the immediate disciples who are around him, so he prays for the disciples. That's what I mean by, by that word, but then he prays for the other disciples, <laughs> us, right? He prays not just for those who are around him, those who, who can hear his voice, but he's praying now then at the end of the prayer, as we read, he's praying for the church, praying for you and for me. And, and some scholars have looked at this prayer and they've noted that so many of the themes that we've come across in John's gospel, they come to the surface in this prayer. You know, again, Jesus is praying for his glorification. He talks a lot about obedience in this prayer. He talks about the mission that the disciples have to go and share the good news of Jesus with others. So there are a lot of those themes that come up in this prayer. But more than anything else, Jesus is praying here for unity. So as he prays to the Father, he notes the unity that God the Father and God the Son share with one another. And that unity is, is like the bedrock out of which the rest of the prayer flows because he says, just as you and I are one, I and you and you and me, Father, now I pray that these disciples of mine, that they would be completely unified. Just so just as I am in you and you and me, that they would be in us. It's <laughs> kind of the, the train of thought, okay? And then he expands out into this, this final kind of sweeping move in his prayer. He says, and not only that, Father, I'm praying for everybody who's going to believe in their words. Everybody who comes to faith because of the proclamation of these apostles, Lord, I'm praying for them too. And, and the prayer is still the same. I pray that they would be unified. Just as I am in you and they are in me and we're all bound up together here as one, I pray that they would all be in complete unity. And the focal point of that unity is the person praying the prayer. It's Jesus, all right? So at the time of John's gospel, at the time this gospel was recorded and, and written down, uh, there was a lot going on in the early church. It was a time when, when following Jesus was not necessarily easy or popular. It was a time when persecution was really beginning to mount in earnest in the late first century. On top of that, you have, uh, you have Christian teaching, you have apostolic teaching, but 
But during this period of time, the, the believers began to, to kind of have differences of opinion, debates about, you know, this or that. What does this mean and what does that mean? And they don't have the complete set of the scriptures like we do, you know. So there's a lot of that kind of discussion going on in places where apostolic teaching couldn't really be leveraged. And so what happened is you had a lot of churches beginning to sort of split. A lot of, a lot of you know, Jewish Christians might want to worship over here in this little enclave. And then those Gentile Christians might want to do things kind of their own way. And you read Romans, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And so all that to say, it's easy to see, it's easy to see why God would want John to record this prayer. This is again, another one of those sections in John's gospel. We get this teaching in John and not in any of the other gospels. So it's easy to see what, what God would want to accomplish through John recording all of this. Because we all know that when external stress begins to mount, that can lead to all sorts of internal strife. When, when stress from the outside begins to weigh in, begins to bear down on you, what happens? Well, a lot of times we, we go internal. And, and we take that stress, we internalize, we, we focus that internally, and that's where in any kind of family, in any kind of organization, it's, that's where you start to get the bickering, the conflict, the discord, all of that. You know this is true because you know it from your own experiences, right? Is there a correlation Between your stress at work, okay, so your stress level at the office, is there a correlation between that and your uh, snippiness level with the rest of your family? Is there? Have you ever noticed that? Like as the stress level begins to mount and rise over here in the workplace, have you noticed that that kind of affects your attitude with the people that you love when you come home? And if you've never noticed it, maybe ask the people you live with, okay? Because I bet they have noticed it. Before we all know that's true, it, it, it just kind of happens. So it's easy to see why God would want John to record this in a time when the external stress begins to, to really weigh in heavily on the church. This prayer, these words of Jesus are a reminder that the Lord does not want his people to turn against one another. I have a friend who recently preached his way through this same passage, and he had a really memorable way of summarizing this. God is glorified when his people are unified. Do you believe that? Say it with me, okay? God is glorified when his people are unified. We'll do it again. That was a sneak attack. You didn't know that was coming, all right? Let's say it again together one more time. God is glorified when his people are unified. I love it. It's a great line. And it's not great just because it's memorable or just because it kind of rhymes, you know, unified, glorified. You can kind of remember that. That's a great line because it gets at the heart of what Jesus is praying for. God is indeed glorified when his people band together as one. When we walk in unity, when we work to maintain, we walk in that that unity of the spirit you read about in Ephesians 4 that maintains that bond of peace that we have. The result is that God is greatly glorified. Just as any father, mother, grandparent, step-parent is pleased and honored whenever the family is getting along and things are good and there's just this feeling that all is sort of right in the world, we can apply that and understand what it must be like from God's perspective, the glory he receives when he sees his children walking in the kind of relationship that Jesus prays for over here in John chapter 17. And so in this sermon prayer that Jesus is praying and preaching, he tells us, he tells us precisely why unity, Christian unity, is so important. 
Look back over those last few verses we read, 20 through 23. You'll see here that Jesus again is praying, Father, I want them to be one just as you and I are together in one. And he says, may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. May they be brought to complete unity. There's our our line again. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them. Jesus says that our unity is a declaration to the world that God has done something in Jesus. That by being unified, we declare that God had a mission that he was achieving in Christ. And and, and more pointedly than that, we contribute to this belief in the world. We contribute to that by walking in unity because the world then knows that God not only sent Jesus, but that if he sent Jesus into the world to do that, to live through that, to rise again from that, then he must also love us. So we can say our unity declares God's mission of love to the world. The better way to say that is that Jesus says that in John chapter 17. So according to Jesus, our unity declares that the Father has sent Jesus into the world. It lets the world know about God's love. Well, how is that true? I think it's pretty simple. When the world looks at us and they they see that, that you and I, all of us together, Despite our differences, despite our our backgrounds, despite all the things that we might fixate on that would differentiate us and keep us from having intimate communion together, okay? Despite all of that, we continue to meet together and gather together and call ourselves a family and, and, and gather around the table and remember the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that makes us a family. And we give toward one another, and we love each other, and when we, we hurt, we cry with each other, and we put our arms around each other, and we, we send food to each other. When somebody's in the hospital, we gather around there, and the, the doctors and nurses wonder, you know, what, what's going on here? You know, and all of those things that happen day in, day out, week in, week out around here, when the world looks at all of that and sees all of that and says, well, those people are so different, and yet they have something in common. So if God loves them, despite all those differences, maybe there's room at the table for me as well, huh? That's, that's how this works. So according to Jesus, this, this unity that we live in and walk in, it's more than just, can we all just play nice and get along? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, given, given the options, yeah, we all want to get along. But there's something far deeper going on here. And when we walk in the unity that the Lord calls us to, it is a declaration to the world that God is doing something in Jesus. And his mission of reconciliation and love is being played out here. It gives the world something to believe in. These days, I don't know about you, but the conversations I have with people, I think people are desperate for something to believe in. So the opportunity is right there, and it may be just as simple as modeling the kind of Christian unity that Jesus calls us to. Unity is modeled, according to Jesus, the the kind of Christian unity he's talking about. It's modeled... Uh, it's modeled after the unity that God shares with himself. That God the Father and God the Son share with one another. Again, all those things that Jesus says, you know, I am in you, Father, and you are in me, and they are in us, and all of that is sort of the the basis for this, this Christian unity. So when Jesus prays, he prays that all the believers, not just those who are gathered around him in that moment, but all believers, that they would all come to this place of complete unity we've said it three or four times here now in a a short amount of time and the reason is because i think it's really it's really important he prays that we would all experience complete unity that word complete 
So it's a form of a Greek word from which we get our English word telescope. It's telos. It means an end. It means a goal. It means a, a purpose. So what does a, what does a telescope do? We all you know what a telescope does, right? If you have the right kind of training, the right kind of equipment, you can use a telescope, you can point it to the heavens, and it can bring worlds that you can't even see with the naked eye, right? It can bring those up close and near. That's what a telescope does. It takes that which is far off and brings it near. And so what Jesus is praying for earnestly in these final moments before they come to get him, he is praying not just that Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John would get along, right? Because that's swell, He is praying that you and I and every other believer would share in this complete unity because that unity is a telescope into a world that has not yet come into fullness yet. He's saying the unity that you and I should embody right now in the present is a foretaste of the unity we will all share together in the end because that is the goal and that is the end toward which this unity is pointing. Does that make sense? That the way it's going to be in heaven The unity we will share together there should come to bear in the present right now in God's church, in the church that bears the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know how else to say it. Our unity declares God's mission of love to the world. We have a high calling to walk in a way that points people, that telescopes heaven into the present right now by the way we treat each other. So my buddy is right. God is indeed glorified when his people are unified. That is the gospel truth. But we can also look at this from another perspective. If that statement is true, then we can kind of come at it from sort of a negative postulate. We can kind of come at it from this negative angle because, uh, because I think it also demonstrates the high stakes here. So our unity here is, to, uh, the unity is a, a mission. It declares the mission of God and his love for the world, but conversely, our lack of unity. Our lack of unity contributes to the world's unbelief. If our unity declares God's mission of love to the world, then let me just ask you, what do we declare when we aren't unified? When people of God are at each other's throats, when when there's nothing but discord in our midst, what does that discord declare? If our unity declares the love of God, then what does our, what does our discord declare? And if our unity is intended to bring God's uh, mission of love near, then our lack of unity it can bring about a pretty, pretty catastrophic effect in our world. You know, every time there's a, a church split, it sets back the proclamation of the gospel more than we'll ever know. That's, that's the really messy, unfortunate reality. Anytime there's a church split, you know, who's, who's caught in the crosshairs there is, is, is the person who's sort of on the fence. You know, a lot of times uh, the church splits are over things that are really, in my opinion, not, not really, you know, the, the most important things. You know, pick whatever the topic might be, you know. There's a, a worship style difference. And I think it ought to be this way, and I think it ought to be this way. And well, my opinion's here, and my opinion's here. We well, get all kind of worked up and, you know, at each other. And well, okay, if that's the way it's going to be, then fine. You've seen how this happens, right? Oh, this is fine. If you're going to do it that way, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my ball, and I'm going to get up, and I'm going to walk over here, and we're going we're to do it this way over here, right? Well, this, is, this is the way I want it to be. Or if we're not going to start something completely new, we just get up because we're, you know, consumers. As, as consumeristic Christians, hey, I just get up, I'll go over here and I'll find another place where I can do church the way I think it ought to be done, right? 
And so we pack up and we go over here and we do our thing and then we're sort of happy at least for a while until then another thing comes up that I'm not happy about. So then I've got to go and pick up my stuff again and move on and on down the line. You know, that happens all the time. You know, the carnage of all of that is your soul may be fine. You may be still on you know, the train bound for heaven. That's awesome. But there's always somebody who was on the fence. There's always some skeptic with his arms crossed in the back of the room who's kind of just looking and he was kind of on the fence and maybe I'm in, maybe I'm not. And then that goes down and he's like, okay, there it is. I was kind of wondering when all that would happen. So I, you know, I can get that anywhere, so I, I'll just kind of leave it here. I'll leave it here with you all. That's maybe uncomfortable to hear, but that's the state of church in the United States today. Uh, our unity is supposed to give the world something to believe in, but all too often it's our lack of unity. It's all that discord that kind of works the opposite. So God is glorified when his people are unified, but that, that then begs the question, who is glorified when we aren't unified? And I think we know the answer to that question. So if Christian unity matters this much, if it matters so much to Jesus that in the final moments before they came to get him, that he, he was talking about it and he was praying about it and he was preaching and praying and preaching and praying, but it was really important to Jesus, then, then it should be important to us, Right? So if that's the case, then, then we should ask ourselves this question, what, what are the threats to our unity? What are some of the great threats to Christian unity today? And, and in a room this size, you know, if we all took time answering that question, we'd be here for a long, long time. But, but I think it's an important question I'd like for you to think about. What is the greatest threat to Christian unity? I took some time this week and asked some of my friends this, this question. And as you might imagine, a lot of different answers to this. I just want to share a few of them with you here. Uh, one of my friends said, uh, well, fear is kind of the first one. Uh, f- fear that we can't be real for fear of judgment. That, that leads to uh, a real sense of divisiveness among God's people. Another of my friends said, you know, feeling like you're the only one who struggles with one particular thing. We talked about that last week. If you think you're one thing, like Satan whispers in your ear, and you're the only one in this room who deals with that, so what do you do? You kind of cover it up, you withdraw, you isolate yourself, and the result is discord. You're, we don't have unity together. Uh, one of my really wise friends said, it's not, for me, it's, it's, not, it's not a what, it's a who, and that is Satan. If Satan is the great threat to Christian unity. Some of you are probably th- were thinking that, right? And he says, you know, for me, it's, it's not even about, like, the issue, because Satan is really great at coming up with a whole host of issues to get us distracted so that then we take our focus off of him because he is the great threat to our unity. Uh, one of my friends said, you know, anytime we take the Bible and we try and hold hands, we can bring the Bible and its standards and its teaching and truth over here along with cultural norms, and we kind of just throw that in the blender and mix it all up and drink the milkshake— He's like, that is, that's a problem, and it leads to a lack of unity for us. Another of my friends talked about the political differences in, in our culture and how that could be divisive in the church. Uh, one of my friends, who's a man of many words, just said sin. Uh, hard to argue with that one, Chris. You know, good job. Um, another of my friends said silence. This pertains to the enemy, but, you know, the, the enemy doesn't want us communicating and talking on any level, so we just stay silent. I think it's a good answer. Lack of love, several of my friends said that. So these are eight or nine answers. And again, there's, there's so many more things that we could say because there are so many threats to our unity. Satan has a, so many weapons he can deploy to tear us apart. 
And we all too willingly will take the bait. But I say all that to say this, there, were, there, were, there was one response that, was, that stood head and shoulders above the rest. That of all the friends that I spoke with this week, that this one response came back more often than any other. And some want to call it ego, some use language of pride, for others it was selfishness, self-centeredness, or whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, they were all saying kind of the same thing, that the great threat to Christian unity, in my mind, is me. That when I get so focused on me and mine and my ways and my stuff, that I become this great threat to Christian unity. When my pride, when I can't like get over myself, when I can't humble myself enough to say to a brother or sister in Christ, I'm sorry, I've wronged you, and I need your forgiveness, that is the threat to our unity. And yeah, you could say Satan is the one over here pulling the strings, and I would agree with you all day long, but there's something about this, just man on the street asking the question, what is the greatest threat to Christian unity? Five to one, the responses were pride, selfishness, ego, in a word, me. I'm the great threat to Christian unity. Because let's face it, if you and I, if we get crossways with one another, who determines whether or not we reconcile? Well, I play a huge part in that. And so do you. And so we both have culpability when it comes to that one. There's an author by the name of Alan Redpath, and he has a quote attributed to him, and I love it. He says, the secret of every discord in Christian homes and communities and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. He's spot on, if you ask me. He's spot on because when we, when we seek the kind of glory Jesus speaks of in John 17, when we seek the glory of the cross that puts others first, it's not just about me. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. There's a huge part of him that didn't want to go to the cross, but he did. And he did so willfully because he deferred his will to the Father. But when we focus on that kind of glory, then when we focus on the cross, unity just is kind of a natural byproduct. Because we're all focused on the one thing that unifies us in the first place, and that's Jesus, right? I suspect the reason you came here today had something to do with Jesus. And every single one of us, we're here today because of what Jesus has done for us, what he's continuing to do in us and in this place. And so we praise God for that. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when he is no longer the central focal point, when our communion has more to do with something else other than the Jesus we have in common, then we have a problem. And we begin to live out that, that refrain that you hear over and over in the judges. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and community and trust and hope continue to erode, and there is no more unity any longer a story attributed to gk chesterton probably attributed to him because he wrote a book entitled what is wrong with the world but according to the story someone wrote into the times of london and just asked this simple question what is wrong with the world and according to the story chesterton wrote back the following reply dear sir i am sincerely gk chesterton and in like fashion, in response to our question this morning, what is the greatest threat to Christian unity? I think my answer would be the same as that of, of Chesterton. I am. I am the greatest threat to, to the kind of unity that Jesus prayed about there in John chapter 17. So as we close, last question I want you to reflect on is this. Who determines 
how the prayer of Jesus is answered. The prayer that he's praying here in John chapter 17. Who determines how that prayer is answered? Well, I mean, the obvious part of this is that God the Father must have something to do with it, right? Because Jesus is praying. Jesus is talking to him. So he's praying to God the Father, and God, in some way, has something to do with all of this. So however we want to answer this question, we need to leave room for God, okay? So we put, we put the big rocks in first here on this one. So it's in some way, that maybe we don't even understand God is involved here because... Because elsewise, Jesus wouldn't be talking to his father about it. But again, this is a sermon prayer, right? So it's not just that he's praying, but he's also doing a little bit of preaching. So there's another side of this where we have to acknowledge our own culpability in this. We have to acknowledge that we have a part to play in this too. Because how we respond to the preaching part of it will go a long way toward determining whether or not you and I share unity. Whether or not we walk uh, together in the, in the spirit of peace and unity that the scriptures call us to. Because again, let's face it, if we get crossways... If there's something between the two of us, you know, we have to decide if we're going to be able to work it out or not in the way that the Lord calls us to. And so that means there's a a little bit of this responsibility that rests with you and me, that we help determine the degree to which the prayer that Jesus is praying is answered. You want to stand before the Lord someday? This is where I get a little preachy, okay? You want to stand before the Lord someday? And he, he says, Jason, I was, I was praying that the two of you would work it out. And you're actively at work, like running counter to all of that. Can you tell me why? I don't want to be on the receiving end of that any more than you do. So picture Jesus praying this prayer. Picture Jesus, before they come to get him, before the guards come, before the crucifixion scene, he's praying and his time is limited and and the one thing that he wants to get in before they take him away. Father, I pray that they might have complete unity. That the, the unity that they embody would be telescopic, that it would bring the end near. Because the way they treat each other and the way that they love each other, that that stunning power of unity that we, st- we began with, Jesus is praying that it would be lived out in you and in me. So this week, our dare is really a simple one. I want to ask you, in light of what Jesus has said, I'd like to ask you just to think long and hard about your relationships. And in particular, I'd like to ask you to think long and hard about your relationships in Christ, the way that you are in relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there some conflict between you and a sister in Christ? Is there a conflict that you're embroiled in between you and a, and a brother in Christ? Are you, in the words of Romans twelve eighteen, as much as it depends on you, live at peace? Are we living that word out? Or instead, are we sowing those seeds of discord in the body of Christ? I told you this is a little preachy. But you know what the the biblical word for that? If you are actively sowing seeds of discord in the body of Christ, and Jesus is over here praying for unity and praying for unity and praying, and and I'm over here working contrary to that, you know what the biblical word for that? It's antichrist. Does that get your attention? Can't remember the last time I used that word in a sermon, right? (laughs) But that's what biblically 
antichrist is anytime I set myself up against the work of Jesus. And so if Jesus wants complete unity among his people, and I'm over here sprinkling seeds of discord, I'm doing the work of antichrist. I'm opposing the work of Jesus. And I need to repent of that. So, I know what some of you are thinking. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she did. You don't know how many times I've put my neck out there. You don't know. Like, you, if you understood, you would side with me, you know? They don't deserve forgiveness. And I'm saying to you, I'm not asking you to forgive them because they deserve it. I'm asking you to consider forgiving them because Jesus commands it. It's a world of difference. So is there some, some kind of discord that we need to tend to right now? If so, then, then we can. My prayer is that we might dare to live out this prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 so that the world might have something to believe in, so that the world might know of God's mission of love because there is a stunning power to unity because God is glorified when his people are unified. Mark's going to lead us in a song together in just a minute and we'll stand together. As he does, I just want to ask you if you need to respond that, that, that you that you do that, how, respond however you need to. Maybe today you need to put Jesus on in baptism and you need to de- declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. We stand ready, he stands ready. Maybe today you need to, to get up and, and pray with one of your shepherds. You'll see him down front as always and also in the back of the room. But maybe today more than that, you need to get up and you need to go find a, a brother and a sister in Christ. You need to find somebody that where I'm talking about this discord stuff or there's a family member, or a, a neighbor, or a friend, somebody who's here that, that you know, you've been trying to worship with and ignore that that thing is there, but maybe, maybe during this song, maybe you need to get up and go find that person, get in the corner and pray with them, <laughs> and I know some of you think, like, that's crazy, I can't do that, everybody's watching, well, Jesus says the world's watching, so, you know, if we can't do that in church, I don't know where we can do it, let's don't let this moment pass, if we need to, if we need to make some things right in order to be faithful to this word of our Lord, and our Savior. Let's do it. Let's stand and sing our song.